Good afternoon, my name is Emily Unity and my pronouns are she, they. I am really honoured to be your MC today and very excited for the discussions that we'll be having. On behalf of the Mental Health Foundation Australia, I would very much like to welcome and thank each and every one of you for attending our LGBTQIA plus mental health forum. Um, but I think that something that we've all touched upon is about peer support and how the community has really found ways to support each other because the systems that we are expected to seek support from are so inaccessible and inappropriate for us. And so I'm wondering about how we can make that sort of shared lived experience of that community building more a part of more popular services. I tried to be popular once, it didn't work out very well. Um, but I want to share a quick story of my favourite psychologist in all of Tasmania, Brad Mertens. If you're watching, Brad, thank you very much for all that you do. But what happens with Brad and people like him, um, once word gets out that Brad is capable and that um, he's sensitive, then we all tell each other to go and see Brad and very quickly Brad's books close. Um, and then we all start asking each other who's, who's good. So common in groups, who should I go and see? But how do we make this idea of peer support more popular? Um, give me money. Um, I will make, I'll document when I do mental health first aid for people. Um, I'll, I'll write it up and I can, build the state for it. Um, if they trust me not to not to forge stuff, I'm happy with that. Absolutely. I think every peer support worker that I know is really under-resourced and unsupported in their work. Um, and I think it's up to a lot of us that we need, we need to get paid for the work that we do. And we do a lot of informal support um, and it's significantly more beneficial, at least in my experience, than a lot of formal support that I've been given. ACL, do you want to say something? Yeah, absolutely. I think peer support has such a um, radical way of changing how we do healthcare, but it's so, so important. And I think there's a lot to learn, particularly from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander services, where there's a lot of cultural workers that are inherent part of, of the system um, to ensure that, you know, we recognize that the medical system can be a hostile system to, to navigate for people who don't neatly fall kind of within its borders. Um, and I think learning from, from those ideas. Um, can again be, be so life-changing how we deliver healthcare in the hospital, for example, incredibly, incredibly hostile environment, particularly for someone who's seeking mental health, for someone to have access to a paid peer support worker and for that role to be actively, actively remunerated is so, 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 so important. And I think if, if you know, kind of we could set up a study to check kind of outcomes around it, we, we would probably see that there's a huge difference, not only in engagement, uh, but potentially in kind of follow-up afterwards as well. Um, so sometimes people don't need to see the, you know, the consultant psychiatrist. Sometimes people just need to see that peer support worker, recognize that lived experience, recognize the distress that's happening and set up kind of some formal um, follow-up um, to, to get the best kind of mental health outcomes. We don't need, you know, kind of the, the whole, whole shebang the whole way through. Um, so remunerating all of those, those roles would be incredibly, incredibly valuable. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you said. I think that it's really important that we're not just placed tokenistically within those roles. It's great that we have a space, but we need to be formalized and respected as equals and experts of our experience. Ruby, would you like to comment? Definitely. Um, what you were saying then, Emily, made me think of, I know it's a question later down, but around workplaces and, and LGBTIQ inclusion. And I work with a health organization, Rainbow Tech. And so it is a big part of when you're going into an organization, knowing that you're the 
the token queer or I've also been like the token disability and that there's no potential for you to move in the organization. But what I was thinking of is as well, like with peer support, so there's now a, a trans peer support navigation clinic in Preston uh, with Panch and the most common thing people are looking for is actually a GP, but they need to go through, but you know, they don't trust us to be able to walk in the door first. And so I guess I feel like it's really important to emphasize just how much work will go into someone even getting to your front door and how easy it is to undo that work um, if you don't if you're if you're not uh, backing up what what has been sold um, you know whether that's uh, not having staff that know to to not make assumptions around pronouns making sure your forms uh, are up to date and that you're giving people space to self-identify or to have other options um, but also just recognizing that a a lot of LGBTIQ specific services, as, as many were saying, are, are at capacity. And so then it's a matter of, do you have a warm referral or do you have something that someone's gonna to have to wait for months before they can actually see somebody? And if that's the case, what are you gonna do in the meantime? And so I think these are all things that in mental health do need to be thought about because I know that the waiting list for counselors at our largest LGBTIQ service in Victoria is up to, it's up to four months at the moment. And I think we're gonna see that continue to increase as the after effects of the pandemic start to, and the kind of cumulative impact of the isolation and, and the suicide clusters that we had in Victoria will start to continue to roll out across the community. So it's that sense of, um, I sound like dooms, I'm not, I don't mean to doomsday, it's just that sense of, of really recognising that there's a lot of steps involved in wanting to provide safe and affirmative and celebratory services, which is why we have these things like Rainbow Tech or Pride, uh, Pride and Diversity has their uh, equality index, steps you can do to start making sure you're inviting people into something that isn't going to cause further harm, but also having peers in there that have a support and a team. Because if you have one person there to do peer support, who's their peer? You know, who peers the peer? And I think that's something we need to think about too. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, hugely vibe with everything that you said. Um, I think peer support workers and lived experience advocates, you know, lived experience is now like a buzzword, I feel like in the mental health service. And so they place like one person in each service and it's very siloed and unsupported and we need to band together and have that sort of critical mass and the peer supporters are the peer supporters, just like therapists have therapists, which I like to call grand therapists for some reason. Um, I would like to throw to Navar. Do you have any comments about this? Yeah, I mean, I really, I really liked um, what Maddie was saying about getting paid. <laughs> um, to be honest, I really think that, I mean, the, the whole system needs to be burnt to the ground and started again. There's a, really only so much reform that we can actually encourage. And as great as like rainbow tickets and these equality indexes are, they also leave a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth because of how often I have been asked to come into really disgusting workplaces um, and give them their tick of approval that I'm not really interested in doing sometimes um, or that it's it's a favor to me which I think that also <laughs> there's going to be a real different framing of this in the next few years when companies start to grovel out on their knees for this kind of training because LGBTIQA plus people are here and we are queer and we will continue to get more queer and hopefully more radical and there will be more trans and gender diverse people coming out and the workforce, what it looks like in the future is not what it looks like now. Um, we will not remain to be the, the small minority um, and these things are shifting and they're shifting really quickly. So um, now is the best time to get on board with this sort of stuff uh, or risk 
irrelevance um, down the line, which I think is an exciting time for the rest of us who work in these spaces. Um, but I think, you know, what I've really come to learn in running my own business and something that I really admire of my partner, Elsa Stewart-Rosenberg, who runs um, Hue, which is an anti-racist organisation, um, something that she's built into her workforce is actually paying staff to do mutual aid and for going to protests and for doing things that are all on the sidelines of what we are doing constantly while we are working full-time, while we are educating all of the people within our workforce, you know, while we are dealing with our families and like all of that added emotional stress that is um, laid on top of us, I think to be actually acknowledging that that is work and that that takes a certain amount of capacity and that honestly that's why I charge as much as I do when I go into corporations because I'm not really charging for an hour of my time I'm charging for the many countless hours of community service and mutual aid and answering you know young teenagers on Instagram who are like I want to come out to my family how should I do that or parents who are like I'm transphobic how can you fix me and all of the things that people don't see happening constantly um, and this is why when I do allyship training and people are like what does it take to be an ally I'm like it doesn't take an absence of hatred it takes matching us on our resumes of what we are doing constantly so that maybe some of us could have a day off so that we can clock off and not think about this kind of stuff and I think it really takes a pivot from this capitalist grind culture of what work looks like and actually really valuing the work that we are all doing constantly not just in our communities but also on ourselves like what Matthew was talking about you know unlearning shame is like a full-time job you know helping our friends and communities unlearn that kind of shame is also full-time like how many full-time jobs can we hold and also still not make our ends meet and still not be able to pay our bills you know um, so I think there's a lot of reframing that needs to happen within that space too. Absolutely. I think it's really great to highlight the importance of it's not just an hour of our time, like it's consistent stuff that we have to you know, confront our own shame when we rock up to work, when we send an email and, you know, lived experience or queries in our email signature and you remember all that trauma that you've been through. And I think it's really important that other people can recognize that too, because in the same way that, you know, psychiatrists are recognized for the amount of work and effort that they put into the academic study, the amount of effort and work that we've put into presenting in the way that we do and just rocking up and showing up and speaking out is immense. Um, and I don't think it's highlighted enough. Um, I'd like to throw to Rodney um, because Rodney, you spoke about that standalone service because current services are not, you know, mental health is not one, one size fits all. Um, and so we do need a, very much a standalone service that has that intersectional lens. Um, and I was wondering how you feel that peer support can sort of fit into that. Um, I know that, um, there are there are already peer support services in Tasmania, um, services that provide some kind of peer support. There's a peer support groups, uh, foster diversity groups within schools, um, and that work is fantastic. Uh, a lot of that work's undertaken by working it out. So I'm familiar with that peer support work, and I know what a great difference it can make. Um, but it's not enough. Um, I know from, I, mean, I do quite a bit of work with people who have faced systemic discrimination. When I say systemic, I actually mean prolonged and consistent discrimination in the workplace um, or harassment from neighbours or, um, or uh, constant rejection and exclusion by family, ostracism, ostracism 
uh, or by their faith community or whatever it is. Um, and I know from working with those people, let's say as advocates against conversion practices um, or, or as advocates for other kinds of law reform, how deep the trauma runs um, and that really, um, while peer support is important, uh, uh, Maddie may have mentioned already that both A and I are involved in a, in a kind of peer support group for conversion practice survivors in Tasmania. How important that is, uh, professional um, uh, paid mental health services that are oriented to people who have been through these deeply traumatic experiences is essential. So peer support is essential, but professional support is also essential. And at the moment, in a place like our, like Tasmania, and this is not the case, obviously, in Sydney and Melbourne, or it might be, I'm not sure, but we can refer people to um, this, as Maddie was saying before, to this or that, to professional therapists, psychologists, um, who we know will be okay, but um, that shouldn't, it should, the process shouldn't be so ad hoc. Um, it's absolutely essential that we have services that we can rely on, that are consistent, that are there, that people know about, um, and that those who have experienced this very deep trauma um, and discrimination that's often gone on for months, if not years, of their lives can find some professional support there. So that's why I'm talking about um, funded services, because uh, I've seen the impact of peer support and I've seen uh, the value that it has. And I also, I guess, have understood, have come to understand the limits of that particularly in regards to people who have been through conversion practices and people who have experienced long-term harassment by, by those around them. Thank you, Rodney. No, I think that's incredibly important. I think it's, um, we, we need to develop partnerships and so the professionals can really be led by us as experts of our own experience rather than overriding our experiences and our opinions with third party observations that are outdated and irrelevant. Um, and I think it's really important that we're having those conversations and I really thank you for all the work that you're doing in that space. Um, I want to throw to Matthew um, because something that I've been meaning to ask is that particularly as a creative, I think that um, in my experience and that, that of my peers, it's been really hard to express a lot of my experiences, particularly within like a one-to-one -one traditional mental health setting. And I wonder if you found that creative expression has found some sort of way in like peer support or that sort of shared pain, that shared shame. Um, <clears throat> well, I use my own art practice to explore shame and those themes. And I think um, it's a great way to better understand your experiences and yourself and your own unique relationship with shame in particular, because it's so elusive and you know, it keeps its power by kind of hiding in the shadows. So by be, being able to use your creativity to um, kind of get at the texture of shame is um, really helpful. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Um, no there was a question that came through in the chat. Um, I might throw it to Matty. Uh, what advice would you give allied health professionals to best work with you and support you? And then I might chuck it to SEL afterwards as a mental health professional. Um, yeah, it got, it got answered with just like pay, pay for consultation. But to expand on, to expand on that a bit, um, 
there, there was another answer that I thought of, which is like try being queer um, and see see what that's like. Um, just like put it on for a day and you can take it off at the end of the day and um, that's nice. But yeah, that idea that, um, what is it? Right, so what, what Brad does, I'll go back to him because he's a bit of a, he's becoming a bit of a hero today is he goes and does the work for me. Like if he doesn't understand something, he won't ask me to explain it to him. He'll go and do the work to um to understand it himself um and that takes the burden off me thank you Manny. No, I, I think that that's a really good point is that a lot of us and particularly throughout the speeches that you've shared today is that we're expected to be these case managers and it's only through these traumatic experiences of having to justify our own experiences and our opinions over and over again that we learn to be our own advocates and we shouldn't have to be and it'd be really important if allies can show up for us and create that space for us. Asiel, do you want to share your experience? Um, because I feel like, um, so I have experience as a peer worker and I feel like it's okay for me in that space as a personal lived experience to create that space for other people. But do you have any tips for like allied health allies, if that makes sense, <laughs> who can help create that sort of space? Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think there's a few shared, um, uh, bits and bobs, I suppose, with every single kind of healthcare setting um, that I think are really, really important to check in and revise and make sure that's kind of all done appropriately. I might pick up on, on Maddie's idea of um, try being queer for a day and see how, how it happens and just walk yourself through the whole clinic and see what um, potential aspects could be improved. So anything from, you know, when you walk in the door, are there any signs there that signifies that this is gonna be kind of a safe space? Are there any kind of posters, lanyards, pronoun badges, looking at your intake forms and going like, oh, hey, maybe uh, the Medicare details might not match my actual kind of name, pronouns and gender. Maybe we should separate those two out and having a look at your intake processes. And similarly with um, staff that are kind of outside of the kind of healthcare staff, but incredibly important to keep the service going, like receptionists and intake workers and all of that kind of supporting staff. Whenever there's going to be an interaction, making sure that those staff are also kind of brought on board, uh, sometimes kind of training and um, kind of engaging with a community and education is done for just the healthcare staff and then the rest of the the people who are working in that kind of space are kind of left out and it's often those people who are actually the first ones to kind of contact clients or patients or whoever else uh, and, and walk yourself through the clinic anywhere from you know the toilets down to your consulting room and seeing what bits and bobs could potentially be aspects that could be improved on to be more inclusive uh, to be a bit more uh, welcoming to the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, and of course, if uh, you can't be queer for a day, bring paid community members to do it. It's uh, another wonderful way of remunerating community for a lot of that labor uh, and education that they have to do um, a lot of the time, day to day, without any recognition or payment. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I'm such a big fan of not just expecting people to hear within like one to one hour sessions with a psychologist, but creating safety and inclusivity every and anywhere that we can. Um, and I think that that's really important that it's not just, you know, the clinicians are trauma informed, but so are the receptionists, so are the cafe staff. Um, I think that that's incredibly important. Um, I might throw to Ruby now. 
I remember to unmute, sorry. Um, I was, I was going to add, I think with a, you know, try being queer, I also would, it's great to also just, uh, I like to present it for a thought experiment, imagining that everyone is bisexual by, by default, I call it, cause it's funny, but, um, and then basically, uh, then letting them let you know if it's different. So you assume everything and then over time, and I think it'll help people recognize how quickly we, we have been socialized to default to everybody is straight until proven otherwise. Everyone is cis until proven otherwise. And um, everyone is, is, is often white until proven otherwise. Everyone is able-bodied until proven otherwise. How we default to these assumptions and these ideas of what we have considered to be, um, and again, I say this with like finger hyphens if you can't see me, normal, um, based on what is, uh, because that sense tends to be everything that is other. And we have issues with the siloing that can happen in these spaces, which comes up. People in chat have been talking about funding. And I think this is really important because I recognize that community health funding is getting more and more complicated, that the grants programs are getting more complicated, that the targeting is getting smaller, that the length of time you'll be funded for is getting smaller. All these things are actually counterintuitive to, to long-term out improved outcomes for any of the communities that are being set up as, as vulnerable or, or as, um, as priority populations. So I suppose it's a matter of then trying to find out what you can learn from those projects and embed them as part of the practice as opposed to having them as these kind of little one-off pop-ups. Um, I think also when it comes to count, uh, getting consultations, it's so important to recognize the time it takes to build trusting relationships with other groups. If you're trying to build communities of practice or consumer consultation groups, uh, or even if you're trying to put on like a queer event or, a, or an LGBTIQ themed um, uh, care, like a social support group, if you haven't done the work and no one turns up, uh, it's because we don't trust you and we don't know about you. And I think it's important to recognize that the default of any of us going into a space is, is to assume hostility um, until seen until we've seen a lot of clues that it will be otherwise. And I also, this is back a little bit, but I want to echo Rodney in that the need to balance peer support with professional, um, like a, like professionality as well. I have issues with the medical model because I do believe that the one direction flow of information that is assumed and the kind of reliance on ex, like on uh, professionals for, to cure, as a, for cures can be deeply problematic in other areas. But I, I also think that there's a recognition that for, sometimes for complex issues that we do need professionals in there and that there is a level of expectation on peers that leads to communal exhaustion. Uh, and I think uh, we've seen some surveys were going around which we'll get the results for soon about the but LGBTIQA plus community leaders who are providing peer support throughout COVID and the lockdowns and the impact that that's had on our ability to continue to do this kind of work and continue to provide support for people. Um, and also the fact that if we look at the demographics of our population, uh, roughly between five and 10% is what people suggest. Uh, proportionate funding at alone would be significantly more than we see going into mental health funding for LGBTI people at the moment, especially given that suicide and suicidality are two of our biggest, um, not epidemics, but some of the biggest risks we have to, in our lifespans. Um, yeah, thanks. Thank you, Ruby. There's so much I want to touch on, um, but I just want to celebrate the assuming the bisexuality and assuming gender neutral pronouns and stuff like that. I think it's so important to just set that standard and um, change the norm. And I think it, it thought it made me remind me of this meme um, that was like questions for heterosexuals. What do you think caused your heterosexuality? When did you decide that you were heterosexual? Which I, my friends all found that absolutely hilarious. And I think that like, particularly the relationship building is so important because I think a lot of services create these initiatives for us and then we don't rock up because we don't trust it. And they're like, oh, you know, they didn't want it, but that's not the issue. It's that it's not 
genuinely co-designed, it's not genuinely safe for us and you haven't built that relationship with us. Um, I'd like to throw it to Maddie. Just a quick bit of practical advice for um, healthcare providers on, on how to do better. There's a thing that I like to call, um, that, that I often see, I call it the deer in the best practices look. And it's when a health provider, um, I go, hey, I'm queer. And there you go. And they don't know what to do. Um, now that I've given you a, a name for that, the deer in the best practices look, um, try and catch yourself when it happens and then make a note to do some, um, what do we call it, PL, uh, to do some learning um, on that topic later. No, absolutely. I think it's about recognizing where our sort of gaps are and how we can improve ourselves and not necessarily like, I think a lot of people take offense or get really scared about approaching topics like this. Um, but I think it's about approaching us with compassion and curiosity and learning to do better. Um, and something that I'd like to explore a bit more with y'all is we've spoken a lot about mental health services specifically. Um, and I would like to explore like, you know, obviously mental health exists outside of the services themselves, but um, never, I know you do a lot of work, um, particularly within workplaces that might not be mental health services. Um, how do you sort of create those spaces and share learnings about inclusivity and respect? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think the thing that, you know, keeps coming up and that we keep speaking to is, is funding and opportunity and also prioritizing this kind of training and this sort of conversation, because more often than not, you know, I have within my training, like I have, for example, a two pronged trans learning module that is a total of seven hours. That for me, I think is the minimum that a workplace needs to do before we begin to even scratch the surface. More often than not, I'm receiving inquiries to speak for free. I'm being asked to speak, okay, can you um, do this in an hour though? And it's like, well, no, I, I can't do this in an hour. I can do the best possible version in an hour, but the fact that I am constantly being asked to change what I think uh, is worthy of a tick <laughs> um, is infuriating because uh, then people are asking questions like, well, how can I be a better ally or whatever? I mean, there's a lot of questions coming up in the chat that like, I really want to answer. And also we don't have the time to answer. We don't have the opportunity to answer these. Um, if this is the first time you've asked that question, you know, why is that? And if it's the question you've been asking for a long time, then how can we best support you to actually get it answered properly? And I think people more often than not, organizations, institutions, and may I add as well, plenty of corporations that do have the funding, that do have the money, but just say, oh, we don't have the budget. And it's like not having the budget is not the same as not having the money. It just means that you haven't prioritized this thing and you haven't actually set aside the budget. I don't care if you have to have a casual Friday or a bake sale, put together some, some dollars and like, this is how much this service costs. Um, I'm not interested any longer in being the restaurant that people are like, put it on the tab. That's not um, appropriate in other spaces. So it's not appropriate for my services either. Uh, and I think that a lot of those organizations, yeah, don't prioritize these things and are looking for an easy way out. Um, and an easy way to not actually engage in those professional developments. And again, I think at the very end of the day, that is going to disadvantage those workplaces far more than it will end up disadvantaging us um, in the long run, I believe. And that's what I need to believe as well in order to engage in this work. Um, but I guess the ways that I do that, first and foremost, is also creating really um, 
I don't want to use the term safe space because I actually think that that term has been co-opted by oppressors to feel safe to speak um, in a bigoted way. (laughs) And I create the spaces where they can do that. I actually go into workplaces and I create um, spaces where people can ask questions that are harmful. And that is a service that people require. They really require an opportunity to engage in a scary topic in a gentle way with someone who is very nice and very friendly and will answer all of their questions with an open heart. And I am really happy to do that for a certain um, fee. And also with the understanding that that takes a significant toll um, on me every day and that there are some spaces where I don't really want to be particularly lovely or friendly or happy about this sort of training because it does make me angry and um, and I think you know Emily what you were speaking about earlier of like what does it actually mean to have to relive our trauma over and over again just for educational purposes and what does that actually mean for our own self-development and our own ability to move on and I think um, Hannah Gadsby spoke about this a lot in Nanette of what it means to cut off your story at its trauma point and not allow for any further development and um, basically this is a, a long-winded way of saying that if you actually really understand and value the emotional labor that is being taken within those spaces then you will you will do what you can to find that funding to value those voices at the standard that they deserve to be valued to prioritize this kind of training because there is a lot of work that can be done in this sector and I can't wait to stop doing 101 training and start doing 202 and 303 and 505. I mean, I can't wait to do training that actually grows me. Do you know how sick I am of talking about pronouns? I don't care about pronouns. You can quote me. Like, honestly, it's really not that big a deal when trans and gender diverse young people are on the street. They don't care what pronouns you use when you hand them the keys to stable housing. They don't really care what pronouns you use when they have access to so much more in this world. I mean, that's not to say that pronouns aren't important, but God, I wish I could talk about something else. Uh, There is so much more to be done in this space that goes beyond those things um, that we are not even beginning to reach because we are not prioritized at all. I don't don't even know what to say. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah, that was absolutely fantastic. Um, And it's hilarious and so powerful for you to say that you don't care about pronouns, because I think that it's it's such an important message that they keep expecting us to give this like very vague overview of like, you know, diversity, um, but they don't actually want us to talk about the real specific issues and like put their money where their mouths are rather than like putting a rainbow flag at the entrance other than like actually funding real lived experience positions and training clinicians up to the standards that we actually need. Um, yeah, it's it's much more about that accountability and following through. And unfortunately funding and budget is such a big part of it, but it also makes people very uncomfortable. And I think I'd like to throw to Rodney about that because I think particularly within the spaces that you walk, um, funding would be something that you speak to quite often. Um, And I think for me in my work, it's been really hard to tackle that. And it's such a black box. So what has your experience been with funding? I, I have I have had a fair bit of experience, yes. Um, I mentioned before working it out, the support and training organisation in Tasmania, I was involved in obtaining funding for that and and recently for increasing its funding um, to do uh, to extend its uh, LGBTIQA plus support work in state schools. 
Um, and I think the key, it's, it's incredibly frustrating working with uh, ministers who make commitments that aren't followed through or working uh, with bureaucrats who say they don't have the power to make any difference um, or community advocates who are really enthusiastic to make change but um, don't know who it is they need to speak to because the system seems so Byzantine. You know, um, who do we send our submissions to and who do we need to talk to and what Treasury officials are going to make the final decision. And um, <clears throat> what we're, we're funding, where I found that obtain, obtaining funding for critical services, including support services, peer support services, school services, has been most successful is when though all the people who work in that particular area have have basically dedicated themselves to a long-term plan. So, so we've got to, and I'll, I'll take schools again because that's been relatively successful um, in Tasmania. Uh, there was there's working it out that delivers those services. There's a quality Tasmania that does a lot of advocacy. Uh, and lobbying work, so we have on law reform, so we have connections with politicians, um, and we're also on the same government reference groups. There's the whole government group, there's the education department, LGBTIQA plus reference group, the two relevant ones. Um, so in each of those forms, whenever we're talking to politicians, or whenever we're uh, liaising with the funding bodies, or whenever we're um, in the reference groups and talking to the senior bureaucrats. We have the same plan. We might talk about different aspects of it or talk about it differently to those people depending on what their role is, but the plan is always the same. Where we need to get to in five years, uh, what level of funding we need to be able to do the work that we're talking about, um, and you know how many workers that would be, um, all that kind of really specific stuff. There's, a, there's an understanding that we all share uh, of where we need to go. And so whoever we're talking to, we make sure that we work that in. Um, so you could go, could go along and talk to a politician about gender law reform, but make sure you say at the end, oh, and don't forget that we need another half million dollars for X, Y, Z. Um, that, I think, has been the key to success in getting the funding in the area that I'm just talking about, the education area in Tasmania, um, which has been difficult because, you know, we're talking about a conservative government and a state with no, that never has any money for anything. Um, so that's been a success story, and that's why I say I think that that's a model because we've worked together. No matter who it is, no matter what our role is, that we all understand where we need to get to, and we work together. And maybe that's easier in a smaller place where you've got people, not so many people, and they rather they meet more often. And but um, being on these reference groups together. Um, working together on different law reforms, we're able to develop these plans and, and sort of put them into action. Um, and I hope we can do the same in terms of the mental health uh, reforms that I mentioned earlier. Um, in terms of Sydney and Melbourne, um, I, know, I know in bigger places things are different, but sometimes I see a kind of top-down there's there's people at the top of key queer organisations that because they're at the top of those organisations have a sense of we know what's best uh, and they've got their own plans for what they want to do for their organisation, for the future of the community. And there seems to be a greater dislocation between that and um, 
people on the ground and what they want. Um, now, I'm not saying that things in a smaller state are perfect, and Maddie can testify that sometimes we get out of touch with our community, but I'm not sure that we're able to get as much out of touch as I see some leaders in Sydney and Melbourne becoming. Um, that, and the plans they have, uh, I'm sure they're fine. And I'm sure that uh, if they come to fruition, then that will mean that there are the services that people need. But unless you're working with the community closely um, and understanding what people are needing, and, and uh, then those there's less the plans are less well informed, and they're they're harder to execute because you don't have the community behind you. Um, and I mentioned the, the schools issue in terms of the school inclusion programs here, the LGBTIQA ones. Um, we had strong, we've had strong community support for that. Strong support from within the LGBTIQ community, strong support from within school communities, um, and we were able to channel that when we needed to in terms of getting funding. So, people in leadership positions need to be closely in contact with the community. Uh, in developing plan, long-term plans for getting funding for the services that we're talking about, particularly, obviously, mental health services. Um, I take the point earlier from Ruby that uh, we don't want to... This is off, off on a different track, but I, I wanted to address this, that we don't want to medicalise uh, LGBTIQA plus oppression um, and discrimination. Um, it's not all about professional services, absolutely not, and I certainly didn't mean to suggest that. Um, the the trauma that we experience is because of the political position that we're in, a uh, relative position of powerlessness in, in a society that it stigmatises us. Um, it's a political problem and there are political solutions. The law reform that I mentioned before and um, uh, bringing an end to discrimination. But sometimes trauma becomes so great that um, we can't... that we really do need those professional solutions. So I don't want to medicalise the issue that we're talking about, particularly given that, for me, it is quite a political issue. But um, uh, uh, my point was simply that, for some people, um, professional support, long-term professional support, when they've experienced trauma over many years, is seems to be essential. Um, and getting money for that? Well, like I said, a long-term plan that the leadership and the community together can work on. I definitely agree with a lot of what you said. I really appreciate particularly the top down and ground up different approaches. And I think that that's really important is that, you know, we do have those flows of communication. It's not just people that become so out of touch that's, you know, some people still have really great intentions, but they just really don't understand what's actually being experienced by everyone on the ground. Um, and I think that sort of framework of making sure that our experience is being heard all the way through and embedding lived experience not just at the top but like through every part of the hierarchies is incredibly important and I think that that's a new way that yeah is definitely the way forward. Um, I want to throw it to Matthew because I feel like that sort of top-down ground-up approach actually relates quite a lot to what you spoke to about shame and I think stigma and discrimination is one of the biggest things that you know we're all very very passionate about. And I think shame particularly for me has a bit of that responsibility of that like top-down and bottom-up approaches and I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Emily I might need you to like rephrase the question. Of course so I... I'm so sorry ADHD brain it makes sense in my head it doesn't make sense to anyone else. Um, I'd say uh, 
I think for me, uh, with shame, a bottom up approach is about like the community based things where I've gone to found my my people. Um, and I feel like it's that shared pain and everyone understands me and to be able to understand and live through my pain with people around me. But then that sort of top down approach for me would sort of look like the leaders at the very top being, you know, demonstrating vulnerability and making those campaigns visible and you know, putting those supports in place for people like us. Um, and I'm wondering what your sort of thoughts are as to how we can push both those like ground up community-based approaches um, and also the, the top down, like the leaders role modeling things. And if there are any other ways that you can think of. Um, that's a big question and Sorry. I'm sure <laughs> I can answer it, but I, you know, I think one of the things I wanted to touch on is how much of an issue um, social isolation is in the community and how that perpetuates shame. Um, so the ground up, lived experience work is so crucial in that space. Um, at building community um, outside of the, you know, the counselling room. So I think it's essential to a shame resilient community for those bottom up approaches to be kind of prioritised. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, it's really it's really hard for us to get both sort of ways working. Um, and I think a lot of the time, a lot of mental health campaigns are sort of about that role modeling of like, you know, it's okay to not be okay rather than demonstrating and actually like implementing real vulnerability. Um, and I think it sort of ties back to what Navo said about, you know, those <laughs> inclusion 101 rather than 202 it's very much that like vague overseeing thing rather than like actually digging in and addressing and making sure that the issues are addressed on an ongoing basis um not just with a vague understanding ruby would you like to comment <laughs> on that uh clinical supervision uh like lgbtiq specific clinical supervision can be really great to help people get in the habit of reflective practice in that way but i think um i was my brain jumped back to, um, to the idea of social isolation. Uh, so as someone like, you know, I've, I've experienced, I'm autistic, I have ADHD and I've been, done, I've been doing work in the LGBTIQ disability space for a few years. And there's a lot of isolation. It's a severely isolated a population of people in different ways, because much like the LGBTIQA plus communities, disability is a term that within that community space, you have so many different kinds of people and experiences. Um, but, and, and then I think, again, when you compound uh, like identities that are already isolated and marginalized, you, of course, compound experiences of marginalization because often those then occur within the spaces that would have been deemed as communal anyway. And I guess it's that sense of also recognizing, and so I think as far as practitioners go, helping people connect with peer groups as professionals is also uh, to help build that resilience is really useful. I think uh, one of the things that can come from having identities that are uh, quite invisible and, and where some of the bigger issues are around visibility and, and just acknowledging existence um, can be that uh, we tend to attribute most of the, the pain we've experienced in our lives and the damage that's done to our own personal failings as there isn't really language in, around us that describes what's been happening to us until we find that. I've become much better at self-advocating since I've met people who are like me who I want to advocate for. It has been much easier to recognize and find pride in myself by seeing people who are like me, who I felt proud to be with. Um, I think that was especially, you know, I, there are a lot of 
the journey to being comfortable with bisexuality, because bisexual pride is not something that you see much of, and bisexual celebration is not something that is really uh, done, uh, in, even in, within LGBTIQ spaces. We're starting to see that change, but it's, it's very slow. Um, I always think of the Riddle scale, Dorothy Riddle scale of homophobic attitudes, because I feel she really nailed it by looking at how, um, you know, we, the negative attitudes, it was repulsion, pity, and then tolerance and acceptance as negative, because tolerance implies you're hoping it will end. You tolerate a cold. We tolerate a lockdown, barely. Uh, acceptance implies that you need to make accommodations because your identity may have more value. And I think often acceptance and tolerance is about as far as we get in a lot of places, and that's mistaken for a positive thing. And um, I think you can't really build an internal sense of, of pride and celebration if all you really know is tolerance and all that you've been taught to have in yourself is tolerance. Um, I think it's, it's a really tricky space because uh, it, it, it kind of makes you feel like you're just in the stasis mode and that you know, there's nothing really to move forward and, and look forward to uh, because uh, parts of you will never are going to be constantly to be overcome for you to be able to be happy and healthy and loved and worthy um, as a person. And I think especially when you have disability as well, that can really exacerbate. So I think with I, I, I think I, addressing isolation and as a mental health strategy and as a strategy for building resilience, but also for building a sense of interest and curiosity about, about parts of identities that we might not necessarily have seen as being important. Uh, which means it's very hard to then understand the impacts it's had on our mental health. Like until I understood that a lot of bisexual people are anxious, it was and that there was a legitimate number of people saying, uh, talking about their experiences of biophobia. I had discounted mine because I had not seen anything around there that would suggest this would possibly have been causing me so uh, any problems at all. Because uh, the social narrative was that at best I was like a diet gay, so I was experiencing like diet homophobia uh, as opposed to like a separate thing. Um, and I think I just want, but I also wanted just to remind councils that we we do tend to with these things by siloing difference. We do not leave enough space to recognize the way our entities interact with each other, that our backgrounds, um, other parts of who we are will also be coming into play here and that that will also have an impact. And, um, and so it, it can basically, I think, sitting humbly with somebody and, and hearing who they are and letting them talk about um, uh, who they are and, and rather than pushing for more answers, just not trying to jump to any conclusions about what that has to be or not be is always a good place to start. Uh, cultural humbleness, I think, is a nice way to get it kicking. Cultural humility is something that I'm just so happy about. I think it needs to be spoken about more widely. Um, and I love your points about like peer supervision, clinical supervision, and like uniting people together because the work that we do is incredibly difficult. And it's we have so much imposter syndrome. Like, you know, it, am I is my trauma valid enough? Is something that like I feel a lot of my peers ask each other every day. But being in spaces just like this, you know objectively professionally this is a cool thing but like personally this is really really cool and it's really nice to be around spaces like this where you know you have that shared mission and that shared lived experience and people you know you're not crazy because you're you're saying what everyone else is saying at the same time and I think that intersectionality that approach to addressing us as individuals rather than like one specific lens is so important um and it's definitely something that I'd love to keep yelling about um I will throw to Navo first and then I'll throw to Maddie Something that also came up for me and what Ruby was saying and, and ties back into what Maddie was talking about too with regard to like having good practitioners who have massive waiting lists is the other thing is like when we actually look at 
the barriers in our society every step of the way to people getting qualified in these areas um, and actually be like you don't need to do heaps of 101 trans training if half of your staff are trans and gender diverse you know like potentially if you actually value lived expertise then that is embedded in your workplace from the ground up every step of the way and I think that um, you know when I go into workplaces and I ask them to really look at their recruitment processes and like what does that look like and are you isolating people when you are onboarding um, new staff and what are the skills that you are valuing first and foremost um, is the only reference that you're allowing their like last line manager who is potentially a workplace they are leaving because of transphobia like uh, how, what kind of questions are you asking to ensure that different people are coming into the space? And that's not to say that, you know, by diversifying your workplace, then you won't need to get professional development in those areas or anything like that, because I think often uh, marginalized communities are forced to play that role in their workplaces, regardless of whether they're compensated for it or not. But I do actually believe that by valuing lived expertise, when you are tackling these projects and, and, and building meaningful relationships. That's the thing, right? It's like, there are people in the not-for-profit sector whose entire job is relationship building and they have like a six month contract. I don't know what it is that these organizations think relationships look like, but they're not built in six months from a, from a paycheck. Like they are built from like meaningful, mutual reciprocity that spans sometimes lifetimes, but building trust is like a long game. Um, and when you are in relationship with people who have completely different lived experience, you understand in a much deeper, more embodied way what the world looks like and feels like for them. And I think what Ruby was speaking to as well of, I am better at advocating for myself because of the people that I am around who I wish to advocate for, I think is a really beautiful sentiment and speaks so well because I mean, I am a professional trans advocate and I don't always correct people when they misgender me. Like I am not always here advocating for myself because I'm also exhausted. And I think that when you really meaningfully engage with marginalized communities and understand the way that their world looks, it's not this afterthought. It's not like, a, oh, we've planned an event and, oh no, we forgot about accessibility. Now we need to build a ramp that's not actually safe for wheelchair users or like, oh, we've got an all white panel. I guess we should quickly ask someone out, you know, like this, this kind of footnote of intersectionality won't exist, I don't believe, if it isn't always white CEOs or like decision makers who are exclusively of the, the powerful elite, you know, like when you do actually value different kinds of skill sets, it, it just benefits everyone in the end. And, and this is the thing that I advocate for as well around like, trans liberation is the liberation of all of us. I think that we really enjoy considering marginalization as an issue that is outside of us, but the ways that, for example, the medical model works with disability is not completely irrelevant to everybody else because you could become disabled at any point in time. And the same with like trans liberation, you know, when we're thinking about that, like it's not an us versus them. It must be so hard for trans people to be trapped in the wrong body or whatever. It's like, I'm sorry, are cis people really happy and comfortable in their bodies all the time? Have you never felt limited by gender stereotypes in our society? Wow, that's great. You know, like these are universal issues that need to be liberated for all of us. And when we start to look at these things of different recruitment processes, understanding obstacles, like anyone who has gotten qualified as a mental health practitioner knows how challenging going through that process is, right? Like I haven't done that, but I have loved people who have been through trying to study psychology and what a disaster that has been for them, let alone with the impacts of different marginalizations on top of that. So 
um, that was a lot of different thoughts, but hopefully uh, some that will be helpful. No, I think it's so important that you are. Oh, yeah, it's really hard for me to like pick one specific one to respond to because it's everything. Um, but something that really stood out to me was like, we like, people in this room um, are picked on as like the convenient queer people or they're like, you know, we're the convenient minority. And I feel like that's something that I actively hate. And it's something that it's a lot easier for me to speak out about like people who are less privileged than me, like I'm able-bodied and educated and have the mental health literacy to present here today. And I think we all are, um, but we all also fight not only for ourselves, but for the people who can't be here today, who don't get these opportunities. And I think it's really important that other people see that and create those spaces with us for those people and not just keep accessing us tokenistically. Um, I'm conscious that SEL needs to go soon, but I would like to throw to you to make a sort of final comment about what is your sort of top recommendation to policymakers regarding LGBTQIA plus mental health. Ooh, where, where do we even start? <laughs> that's uh, that, that's quite, a, quite a complex question around it. Um, I quite like um, Nebo's sentiment of just like burning it to the ground and starting from, uh, just start from scratch again. Um, I think from, particularly from, from my, my you know, perspective um, as, as a GP and uh, someone who works in the mental health care sector, um, I really, really, really do think that we need to A, increase access to uh, mental health services, you know, the Medicare sessions that people get are just so paper thin, even with the increased number due to, you know, the COVID pandemic and whatnot. I think it's, it's barely enough for, for a lot of people who are really um, requiring that uh, mental health care uh, type of service. Uh, there's still a gap fee for most of them. So financial um, considerations are, are something quite quite important. Um, so even, even though we have access to those Medicare sessions, that there often is a cost also associated with them. And any tertiary or higher level of care that is required is you just have to bang on so many doors to actually kind of get it. Um, so absolutely more funding from, from Medicare to be uh, remunerated properly. Um, there was a small discussion happening in the chat where Counselors in particular are not recognized under this, this model. And with such a stretched workforce at the moment, there's, there's just so many mental health professionals that are not appropriately taken care of or considered um, kind of within that, that particular framework. Um, so I suppose there's a bit of a winch about how Medicare needs to do better in order to access, uh, to, to help improve access and care for, for the people that definitely need it. Um, and the other point that I might raise that we haven't necessarily touched on throughout the panel is this does really need to be core competency training for all mental health professionals. And regardless of whether we come from a psychology background, from a psychotherapy background, from a counseling background, from a medical background, um, this is not an added extra. This is not, um, you know, cultural competency, not only with LGBTQIA plus people, but with um, or broad, broad communities that are around uh, multicultural, multi-faith, Aboriginal torchlight, calendar, asylum seeker, refugee, that all needs to be core competency training, not part of an add-on on top. Um, so we really need to re-ambition and re-challenge the way that we do mental health care education and training. Um, so I might stop there before I go on a bigger rant. <laughs> Thank you. I love the rants that we're having. Um, and I agree with your first point that mental health care should be it's a right and it shouldn't be a privilege. Um, and also about trading being done 
so more widely um, and not just for organizations that have, you know, a rainbow in their logo. I think that that's incredibly important. Um, I'm going to throw to Matty. Thank you, Emily. And thank you, everyone, uh, for all your contributions contributions today. My, my mind has moved somewhat, um, but I'm going to thank um, Neville especially today for being so radical and I'm going to try and top you now. Um, and some of the things that you brought up, um, there's something that stuck with me where organizations were trying to get the rainbow tick because they feel like they have to. Um, and I think people were mentioning in the chat um, the evidence for lived experience workers having really good outcomes. Um, and so there is, there is, there is will for, for LGBT mental health to be improved and there is evidence for it. And I'm going to suggest that instead of recommending to the mental health system that um, we are depathologized, I'm suggesting that we get together and queerify the mental health system. And I'll just leave it at that. I like that. Let me know when um, sign-ups to the revolution happen. I can put my name down. Um, I'd love to just go around the room as like a sort of wrap up and I'm very sad that it's wrapping up. Um, I'll throw to Matthew next. Do you have a top recommendation if you could pick one or two to policymakers regarding LGBTQIA plus mental health? Look, I think it's a second everything everyone else has said. It's like we there needs to be more funding. Um, like I, to give you an example, like I opened my private practice in August and I was full by October. Um, so this needs to be more specialists live, who have lived experience in the area and um, that there is a gap and, and it's unaffordable for a lot of people. Um, so increasing what the rebate is so that it could be more accessible to more people more often um, seems to me to be really important. And I guess my particular area of um, interest is around shame. So I guess more shame, resilience, training, um, and perhaps be a normal part of education. Um, yeah, that's all. No, I definitely agree with that. I think it needs to be more pervasive and not so siloed into specific circumstances and used on when it's in a crisis situation. And we need funding for that. So thank you. Um, I'm going to throw to Rodney. I think I spoke earlier about my recommendations for services and funding. Um, so I'm going to end on a different note. Uh, and just following up what we were saying before about getting funding services, um, peer support or professional services or whatever it is. I talked about having long-term plans, etc. Another really important thing is always asking for what you need. Don't ask for what you think you get. Ask for what you know is necessary. Um, and I see far too often um, community leaders thinking that their government's not going to listen or it's only going to provide you know part funding and so that's all they ask for 
It happens again and again. We sell ourselves short so much. We know what the need is. And even if it seems unrealistic that we will get that funding, if, like I said before, we have a long-term plan for it, then making the ask, the ask that we should do rather than we think we should do, that we think we should do, the ask, the ask based on the need, then um, uh, even if it takes a bit longer or um, seems impossible, in my experience, that's what pays the biggest dividends. We've got to ask for what we need and stop pretending that politicians will like us more if we ask for what they if we ask them for what they want to give us anyway, which is usually very little. So um yeah, don't sell ourselves short. Absolutely. Oh, and also about um querying the mental health system. Yeah, double thumbs up for that. <laughs> I love that. Um I think it's a constant process of us overcoming that shame and stopping kneecapping our sentences and our experiences and that's something that I really appreciate you highlighting. Um I'm going to throw to Ruby next. For policymakers particularly, I think, is a tricky one because um, generally it's like, are you the best person to decide what the policy should be? Uh, have you genuinely thought about that? Like, do you have any idea of what the lived like, experience of the policies you're creating will have? And if not, who are you getting to, to talk about that? Um, that's a big one because I, I've had friends who have talked about the policies they're working on and I have just been really... And it has been clear, I'm like, you've got no idea what that is and that you're not the right person for deciding on that job. So who are you bringing in to make sure? And at what stage are you bringing them in? I'm really tired of being brought into a consultation at the end when they're giving me a strategy that is practically finished uh, for disability inclusion, for LGBTIQ inclusion, for bisexual inclusion, and to basically just to find it, frankly, quite offensive and to ask and like to say, well, this is great, but you, but it's not great. I lied. I'm trying to say that because I'm nervous about how you're going to respond. But um, so I think it's that sense of recognizing so many projects and funding will talk about co-design, but the idea of the project itself needs to be done with consumer participation. We can't speak for people. We, uh, you can't speak for people full stop, especially people who you do hold at a distance. Uh, I really love Rodney's point about asking for what we need and what we deserve not what we think we'll get away with, because the truth is, I think Australia's, uh, again, we have to assume homophobia and transphobia and biphobia until proven otherwise, it's still a pretty hostile climate, even if it is not as, um, as, as, as a legally, even if that kind of criminality is not legally enforced in the same way. For example, uh, with mental health, we're coming up to another, uh, we're coming up to the religious freedoms debate again, and this stuff's been going on for years. And even just saying that, I can feel my whole body squeeze up um, and I feel like I'm going to cry just thinking about what this will be like again. And I cannot stress enough the, the yeah, intense toll that these debates about policy has on all of us. And so I suppose when you step in and have those conversations and change what is considered to be acceptable, so it's not actually okay to talk about whether or not trans kids are the devil. That's not okay anymore to make it very clear there are social consequences for these things because, um, not knowing the language for something and feeling afraid of getting the language wrong and so resisting the urge to talk about it at all doesn't help us. It actually makes it really hard. And I'm, I'm really tired of bringing up disability inclusion and bisexuality and people changing the subject because they can and because they don't want to talk about it because they don't understand it and it has nothing to do with them. So, um, yeah, I, I guess we're all echoing. And I think if there's anything the last 18 months said, it's like, I think we're all just a bit tired of this. You know, it's disillusioning when you go into a role and you start giving the same talk 
<laughs> every few weeks for years. It's exhausting. And at certain point, it's just like, why aren't you curious yourselves? And I'm not saying that to anyone out here, but um, it's weird that a lot of us are here basically saying, we don't want to, you know, get, get us out of a job. Like, you know, just, just if I don't have to do this ever again, I would be so happy. I would love to know what I can do when I'm not doing this. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. The amount of people that I know that have quit their corporate jobs to go into something like this because it's such a need sucks. Um, and yeah, no, I definitely feel that shared pain with you and I'm, I'm sorry that you experienced it, but I'm really glad that you do because we need you. Um, I need you. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yes, I would like to throw it to Navo to wrap up for today. Oh, I loved what Ruby said. And I really want to echo that. You know, I think that if you're in like, as much as I hate these terms, like diversity and inclusion work, um, without the goal of being unemployed in that work at the very end, then you might not be doing it properly. Like I would like for those jobs to cease to exist in the future. Um, and if I think too much and marinate too much in the grief of how much brilliant artistry and thinking and literature and, um, just like so many things that have been lost to us being too busy doing this kind of stuff um, and having to advocate for ourselves every step of the way. And, and you know, we're also of, of the privileged group of these people who are actually paid to do this work, you know, so many people are not. And so um, if I think too much about, yeah, what I could have been, if not this, because I've been doing advocacy work since I was 15, I don't even really know what else I would have done I don't know where my skills lie like I I just have no idea what my life could have looked like and I feel really grateful for it every day but um, at the same time there is a sense of grief in that so I guess my my greatest advice more often than not even to individuals is like as soon as you feel like you are doing allyship um, the best that you can do that is when you have failed um, that it is a constant ongoing process, that it is not a self-appointed title in which you can just pick up a badge at an Ida Hobbit rainbow cupcake kind of brunch at your workplace, but it is an ongoing um, process. And that for the most part, I'm not really looking for allies, I'm looking for accomplices. And I wanna know who's gonna stand between me um, and cops at a rally, or who's going to write into a newspaper when they go onto a new barrage against trans and gender diverse young people. like who is going to yeah, do the advocacy work so that their kids can have a childhood and not have to do that sort of stuff. And, you know, that is one of the call to actions that I wrote in one of my books was, I don't want you to call me an inspiration or tell me that I'm a role model. I want you to tell me what I have inspired you to do so that future generations don't have to be that and that they can actually just be kids. <laughs> Exactly. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and I think that ties like perfectly into what Maddie was saying is that, you know, it's really great if people could, you know, pretend to be queer for a day and like see what it's like walking in our shoes, but then join us at the forefront of queerifying mental health services and join the battle and the revolution show up for us, not in a one day capacity. Um, I think that that's so important. Um, and I'm devastated that we're over time. Um, <laughs> I want to thank you all so much for such a amazing discussion professionally and very personally um and on behalf of the mental health foundation australia i would really like to thank all of you for participating in today's event and i would like to thank our sponsors australian unity chemist's own foot solutions and you our guests for your support and participation thank you so much and we really hope that you enjoy the rest of your day